0: Welcome to the, 30 Welcome to to the Cersei 34 Cersei Salon. Welcome,
1: Welcome to, 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 make to Make Matriarchy Great matriarchy Again.
0: Matriarchy. 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 And our light applause. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the Thirty-Four Cersei Salon. Make Matriarchy Great Again, Disrupting History, I'm Sean Marlon-Newcomb, and I'm here with Dawn Sam Alden. Hello, Dawn.
1: Hello, hello.
0: We have our esteemed guest, our regular guest, Vicki Noble. Hi, Vicki.
2: Hi. Glad to be here with you guys.
0: And today, we are talking <clears throat> basic, uncut, pure matriarchy. Uh, That's right. it? What That's is it? right. Uh, we thought old, maybe it
2: was about time uh, to explain it, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Well, are we just talking start there? about it? We're going to talk about matriarchy and the concept of old Europe too. That's in the title. So, Vicky, take it away.
2: Uh, thank you. I will. I, you know, I thought I'd bring in a quote first from a book I'm writing with two friends. It's a book about matriarchy. Uh, the friends are Miriam Robbins Dexter, who uh, was the person who finished writing and editing Maria Gimbutas's last book oh the wow Living Goddesses. and she's our indo-europeanist and our uh she's just she's a brilliant scholar and uh Laura Amazzone, who is a specialist in tantra shakta and indian matrikas and things like that and so we're we're working on a book together which has just been a blast we've been Doing it, uh, and before the quarantine, we were meeting up uh, regularly to, or irregularly, to right. work on the project just because we enjoyed getting together, you know, and uh, thinking doing a mind meld and, nice. and coming up with uh, this book, which has turned out to be uh, very substantial, and I think we'll hopefully we'll get it published in the next year or so. But in the meantime, I thought I would read you a little section that I wrote about matriarchy leading into the matriarchy discussion. I say in this book, we dare to use what African author Ife Amadeyumi in her book, Reinventing Africa, has called the much dreaded term matriarchy. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Does the word carries so much baggage, you know? It does. It does. You know, I was just
1: talking with um, a uh a millennial gal who um, who is working with me on um, a project involving women in stage combat. And, um, and I could hear her over the phone line cringe (laughs) when I said, yeah, let's, you know, it's a matriarchy and you could almost hear her go, (laughs) Oh,
2: word. Why do you
0: think that that is? What, what was it about it? Did you ask? What was it? That well,
2: major cringe. Know. I know why that is. It's mm. because uh, there's so much uh, misunderstanding about what matriarchy is. And I think I've said this on this show before that the, I think some of the misunderstanding at this point is quite deliberate. Right. There's a real resistance to understanding the meaning of the word so that we can use it, because then we'd have to talk about it as something real instead of something that people are treating as a mythology or you know, as a
1: boogeyman type of thing or a boogey woman i guess
2: well they just they assume the automatic assumption is that it's the flip of patriarchy just the total reverse so that women are going to be on top and women are going to be brutal and you know it's time for payback and that kind of thing Right. Um, and, and matriarchy you know is is actually as i've said before here are it's our oldest uh social structure it's the one that we started with in in our when we became human nice. Well
0: vicky let me ask you because i i've heard this from guys i know when uh, the word matriarchy is mentioned why wouldn't it be the flip of that why wouldn't why shouldn't people be worried that If you have a patriarchal system where men are the leaders and rulers, and in that patriarchal system you've had a certain type of dominion occur, why wouldn't it naturally be the case that when you flipped it, you would get just the opposite?
2: Well, see, the only way you can theorize that is to completely ignore and be ignorant of anything that predates patriarchy. Mm-hmm. these are these doctrines these ideas uh this fixation it's coming from uh it's coming from the idea that the beginning of patriarchy is the beginning of history and that really nothing interesting happened before that and so prehistory is relegated to the dungeon you know and no one uh pays any attention now maria Gimbutas, of course turned that completely upside down and brought patri, I mean, sorry, brought uh, matriarchy, although she didn't call it that. She brought women-centered, peaceful, artistic cultures and civilization out of the darkness and into the light. And she, she went to great lengths. She wrote incredible books in her lifetime about the details of those cultures, which I'd like to talk about later today, actually. I have a few okay. things I'd like to share just to sort of describe uh, what those early, uh, especially the early farming cultures, the Neolithic cultures in Anatolia or Turkey and in uh, Old Europe. But but first of all, I really thought we should deconstruct matriarchy a little bit.
0: Can I ask you a question, though, before? And before we get to the history proof, I want to play devil's advocate, and I want to do that for the people that i oh, mentioned.
1: Oh, Sean. Recently. The because devil, just devilish,
0: just the devilish. The devil
1: does not need any more advocates. <laughs> oh, that
0: is well put. I like that. Um, however, just for now, in our court of cosmic law, we will give him
1: that.
0: Okay. So, there is this proof, and you're going to talk about it about what a matriarchal society was like and how it's different and distinct from a patriarchal one besides the, the, the sex or gender notion of it.
2: Yes. What I
0: want to ask is, why is that the case? Why should the contemporary fellow who's really concerned about all these gals marching down Fifth Avenue, <laughs> trying to change the world, why should he not be worried that this is going to mean his own <clears throat> demise and oppression?
2: Well, uh, when you hear the words golden age, what do
0: you think of? I think of when the Yankees were out there, but no, I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is going nowhere.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm kidding. I know what you mean. You mean that that golden age, like what we talk about with the Greeks, the age of the heroes, the great,
2: no, the great figures. No, I'm not talking about heroes. <laughs> oh well,
0: okay. You, I thought you asked what I think of. I mean, what's okay. what? What do okay. you mean?
2: Well, I was just thinking that uh, people usually say that it's a romanticization or it's an idyllic fantasy that there was, you know, that there's never been such a thing as a golden age. But actually, the matriarchy is the golden age because we it's first of all, it's not. It doesn't come after patriarchy. Well, we hope that it will actually, but it didn't. Right. It seeded, and it's organic and it's natural and it's how we were, uh, it's how we originated as peaceful, uh, social human beings, Homo wow. sapien sapien, two hundred thousand years ago. And we, and as hunter gatherers, you know, uh, we we have we have had matriarchy in place for such a long time without uh, evil consequences. Um, Because matriarchy at its simplest level, let's go to the word. So if we take the Greek uh, meter, mother, and then the other Greek word, archine, to begin. Also the second meaning of that word is to rule. So we could say mother right, as Bachofen did, but but we also but we don't need to. We can start as uh mothers at the beginning. Mothers at the beginning. You know, what could be more organic? We all come from a mother, and we all come out of Africa, and, and as Lucia Birnbaum has said, uh, we come from an African dark mother, we all descend from that place, and so. That definition, mother at the beginning, and that came from Haida Gutner Abendroth. She's sort of the foremother of the matriarchal studies movement internationally. Um, and but it really fits with what we know of human beginnings. You know, where the mother-child unit was primary, and it's it's what you would call the original family unit. Uh, and some of the feminist archae- uh, archaeologists and uh, anthropologists from the 70s there weren't many but there were some uh they uh they went back to that original definition the the very basic kinship unit you know the original family unit and then uh from there uh kinship lines are established and so on but uh when you now that we know fairly recently, in the last 50 years, now that we know that we all came out of Africa, and we know that we've been human for much longer than we used to believe. We've been uh, humans just like we are now for at least 200,000 years. So that means those those African people who migrated all over the world, you know, they're us. They're, they're our beginnings. And they took the matriarchal values and the matriarchal social structures everywhere in the world. And that's why there are so many uh, common structures among indigenous groups around the world, because we're all remnants of that initial migration.
0: So that source gives us, we start with this single population unit, it spreads across the world, and that early, very beginning sensibility matriarchal sensibility is what was spread to us spread around across the globe in the beginning is what you're saying
2: yeah and that's why archaeologists who want to find evidence of war can't they try and try and sometimes they you know if they find cut marks on bones that they dig up then they assume cannibalism and if they find uh you know a baby buried somewhere they assume human sacrifice and wow. you know they just always go to the dark side but right. it's not uh it's not true and it's not necessary uh of cut marks on bones for example uh, have to do with secondary burials we talked about that a little last time and right. the secondary burials include you know taking the body from the ground or from the exposure that it has experienced uh and they in <clears throat> sorry in nature, uh, taking the bones and uh, putting them aside in a group, some sort of group uh, context. Sometimes they were uh, they were kept you know under chairs or under beds in in houses that were built early, or they were in crypts or uh, cemeteries. But but anyway, it's that kind of thing that we have to completely take a critical eye to and look carefully every time they tell us that there was war or violence or uh, uh any kind of um you know organized aggression or anything like that we have to look at the evidence not listen to what they not listen to the interpretations but really go back to the evidence the evidence is much more interesting and it's uh it's often uh it often gives clues of the kind of matriarchal uh, environments that we see today in, in small pockets of matriarchy that are left in the world.
0: So are you, are you saying that with the onset of patriarchy becomes the, comes the onset of war? Are you associating Absolutely. patriarchy with war? Okay. Let's Absolutely. come back to that. Cause I know you want to define matriarchy first, but I really want to talk to you about that. That issue has come up in some conversations I've had as well lately. So, would we'll definitely will return to that patriarchy and war and its evidence so what further definitions of matriarchy do you want to give us
2: well if you want i, I could quote from uh let me quote a little bit from Haida goodner up Op- since she is really such the theorist in terms of matriarchal studies you know there's a quite a large international matriarchal studies movement at this point and she's been uh Really instrumental in bringing that bringing us together. Um, she, she has written in many different places about matriarchy, and she kind of she has uh, put it into a kind of logical system that always applies to when you're looking for matriarchy. You look for these things. She names them societies of economic mutuality based on the circulation of gifts. Now that can be done in various ways, but that has to be there. Mutuality, reciprocity. Um, She talks about how they're non-hierarchical. They're horizontal societies of matrilineal kinship. So there's a lot in there to unpack, but that's the second Mm -hmm. point. Um, She talks about them as egalitarian societies of consensus. This is so important because, you know, we move so fast in our Western patriarchal societies. Can you imagine having a consensus process? You know, it, it's it strikes us as immeasurably uh, tedious and uh, slow, and we want decision-making to happen faster, but right. because matriarchal cultures use consensus as a general rule, it includes every member of the culture or the society. And that means they keep the peace. They resolve the conflicts that way.
0: That's interesting because I just heard an author who was writing about the American presidency and was talking about the founding fathers had considered the idea of having a group of people be a president, in other words, a consensus group, as opposed to an individual. And the idea was we couldn't have this consensus group One, partially because they didn't want to offend Washington, that they felt they didn't want him to think that they were worried that his ambition would not be something that he could be just and honorable in containing. And then second, the idea of being able to do something quickly to make a decision fast. So it's just like you say.
2: And the reason they even thought of that is because they stole everything for the government from the Iroquois. Right. And Iroquois had a council of women governing Yes. Using the chiefs and, you know, deciding when there's going to be war and when there's not. I mean, that they took that directly from the Iroquois, but they took the women out of it. Right. So then the fourth point for her is they are always sacred societies and cultures of the divine feminine. And, you know, that's one of the things I really want to talk about today, because I realized in thinking about how to explain old Europe, that we often just talk about, you know, the finds or the uh, the pottery or something like that. But overall, what we're seeing when we look at all of the work Gimbutas did to reveal the old European cultures, and and much of the research that archaeology has done over the last century um, to expose these different um, Neolithic places, they're so beautiful, and it comes from this incredible, sacred approach to life. In fact, I have a wonderful uh, short quote from Joseph Campbell. He wrote the foreword to Maria Gimbutas' book, The Language of the Goddess, which came mm. in '89, and he praised her in many ways, but especially uh, for establishing what he says the main lines and themes of a religion in veneration, both of the universe as the living body of a goddess mother creator and of all the living things within it as partaking of her divinity. You know, one of the things I always try to talk about when I'm trying to get people to understand or to really look at the old European cultures is the, the fact that they, that they did not separate the sacred from the mundane, which makes it hard for uh, Western-educated uh, archaeologists to, uh, to to see what they're looking at, to understand right. what they're seeing. You know, right. because they don't uh, think that way. I mean, we don't live that way. We we separate those things. We have separated ourselves from nature and from the body of the goddess, and so it's it's uh, it's almost like an as if kind of uh, consciousness you have to suspend your ordinary consciousness and imagine into a world where there's no separation between uh, the activity of baking bread and the environment of the temple because bread baking was done in the temples birthing was done in the temples communal cooking was done Weaving was done in the temples. There were pottery workshops, you know, making this exquisite pottery and ceramics uh, for 4,000 years. Right. Anatolia and uh, old Europe. And that's the thing that we need to somehow, that's the way I think that we need to somehow come to our investigation. It can't be just a, a linear, rational, Uh, list of things you know there has to be some way that we put aside for the moment our own culture and our own
1: and and remnants of that do remain i love that word that you used remnants we are remnants yeah exactly because um like for instance the sioux uh they have a philosophy called walking the good red road Uh and and that is essentially that the red road is the one that you walk when you are in harmony with nature yes. when you are in relationship with the standing ones and the flying ones and the swimming ones and the two leggeds and the four leggeds and that you are walking in rhythm with all of those things you are part of the world and you are resonating in the same frequency essentially
2: yeah um, Believing that God gave you dominion over all the creatures.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's not a hierarchical relationship. It's an interdependent relationship. Right. And uh, I'm not as familiar with this, but I understand that the same principle is used for what they call karmic yoga, Uh which, which is that your everyday life is your religious practice.
2: That's right, Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's interesting.
0: I was thinking about the, the yoga practices, actually, when you were mentioning that, too. I was thinking about how so much of the yoga you will see will say, how do you access the different chakras? How do you get your your body in alignment? And that's your daily life. You're just doing an exercise, but you're also trying to enhance your being. So would that be an example of that kind of living, that religion, uh, having the sacred be part of you mundane? I yeah. was trying to think of ways we could give the listener contemporary notions of it like uh,
2: in karma yoga you know doing the dishes requires mindfulness right like sitting on your pillow and doing your practice and so that's a that's a wonderful example and I think Native American people are great examples all of them because they also uh, come from that those deep matriarchal values even if you can't see it you know in their contemporary cultures because of so much brokenness often uh, and so much destruction that's happened to their culture. Still, they keep that thread. Look at all the, uh, look at the wonderful protests, you know, the Standing Rock and the ones in uh, Idle No More in Canada. Those are, those are led by women. Yes. It's, Mm -hmm. it's women. Often it's the old women, but not necessarily. It's, uh, it's the women who hold those values of conservation and protection of the water and the earth. And that's because they understand themselves not to be separate from it, you know right. I've always said that the Bolivian women who stopped the uh water privatization uh they did that because they they had to they understand yeah. it as their survival they are the clean water they either have it or they don't you know um, right. And, right and somehow we've we've so lost that we have our theories and we have our uh, we have our good ideas and our, you know, our values, we we want the environment to be safer and less polluted and so on. But we don't understand our bodies to be part of her body. Yes. And that's essential. And that's yeah. what happened to the women's spirituality movement in the 70s. And when we found Maria Gimbuta's and found her books, and the way that she articulated what she saw through her the hard science of archaeology, and also besides that, she was brilliant in linguistics and read in many primary languages, and you know was a, a, an expert in folklore and so on, so she had a lot going but but even just the hard science of archaeology what the way that she told us resonated with how we intuited and understood the ancient cultures of the goddess. Yeah.
0: I think, you know, to also point out, I think in the US still though, you do have a lot of women involved in leading protest movements, particularly for the environment. So there is still some echo of that
2: well, even here yeah, in
0: our advanced cultures.
2: I mean, we're not allowed to say words like natural anymore, but, but in the popular discourse uh, currently, but uh, women do have a, a natural uh, connection to the, to the earth and the environment because we have our menstrual periods and we have our biological cycles and we have, our, we have this connection that we can't actually escape. And so if we're conscious of it at all, we, we care. We care about children, we care about our communities, we care. About the planet, so naturally, if uh, allowed, women rise to leadership uh, positions when they start using their voices in these different movements. That's absolutely,
1: absolutely, and and we'll talk about this, uh, Sean, probably in the women warrior segment that we do about revolutionaries. But
2: um, yes, a right.
1: lot right. of revolutions <laughs> were started by women. Yes, that's right. The Arab, yeah, just recently, the Arab Spring is a perfect example. That was started by women, Ah. and um, Black Lives Matter was started Ah. by three women.
2: I'm just reading uh, Brittany Cooper's book. Well, I've just finished it on Audible. Uh, She wrote a book called Eloquent Rage. She's one of the Black Lives Matter women, and Mm it it is eloquent. Her book it's really compelling.
1: Yeah. But because we live in patriarchy, you will find that those revoli- revolutionary movements, as soon as they gain traction, that they are generally taken over by men.
2: Or the press will only talk to the men. There you go. There you go. Uh,
1: you know, yeah.
2: the same when they go into indigenous cultures, they usually yeah. are interested to talk to the men. Even Peggy Reeves-Sandy, who... Uh, studied uh, for a long time the Maninkabao, who are a matriarchal culture in Sumatra. They're the largest matriarchal culture on the planet. There are millions of them. And uh, What is the
0: name of the culture again?
2: Maninkabao. Okay. I'll give you a spelling later that we can put up on the site. Um, okay. She went and, and spent time living with the Maninkabao, and she writes that it took her I think she said it took her several visits before that she always talked to the men and she and 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 the men are Islamic and the women uh, keep the matriarchal law, which is called the adat, the matriarchal adat. Um, and she she saw the women doing what they do and she saw the men doing what they did, but she didn't put it together until the women took her aside and said, uh, come and talk to us. And we'll tell you you what's happening here. And she realized that they are deeply matriarchal culture, uh, self-described. And she wrote a book uh, called uh, Women at the Center, uh, Notes on a Modern Matriarchy or something close to that. Um, But, you know, that's the thing. We don't, the women aren't the first line of introduction when you enter a lot of these cultures, it's the men who are usually in the foreground. Uh, mm. they're protectors, you know, and uh, and the women are are actually in the leadership, in the governing, but they govern by group. Right. They don't govern by individual egos.
0: Can I ask you, because we have our four concepts, matriarchy gifts, non-hierarchical, egalitarian, and sacred societies just wanted to come back to the matriarchy gifts one. It stands out to me, I think, most strongly because I think in the contemporary world globally, we are under the sway of a very powerful market force. So much of what we can or cannot do or hope to be able to shift or change is affected or impeded by people who have very strong control of those markets. So what is a matriarchal construct of economy. So you were saying matriarchy, uh, mutuality and gifts, I should say. How does that work? Can you give examples of that?
2: Well, rather than uh, giving specific examples, I'm going to put you on to a real expert in the field. Uh, Genevieve Vaughn is part of our international matriarchal studies uh, group uh, movement, and she has done uh, gift economy philosophy for most of her life. She married an Italian, and uh, the, the gift economy was a very uh, powerful Italian philosophical discourse for many decades. And But Genevieve has brought it down to the most basic level, what she calls it, the maternal gift economy, because always uh, these wonderful men who have been working out the different ways that the gift economy works in opposition to the uh, market economy uh, genevieve says it, it's the mother that's our first gift we have the gift of life and we have the gift of nurture because human beings unlike the apes are um, unlike our our primate cousins i guess i should say uh we had we stood up you know we have upright posture so it changed our our pelvic floor and it changed our birthing, uh, pregnancy and birth. And we have to get the babies out early and they're not ready to be independent. They're not ready. They can't go on their own. A a human baby must be cared for even in the most rudimentary sense, or we do not survive. So the original gift is the gift of life and nurture. And it's usually a gift of mothering. And Mm -hmm. so, and she calls all the Givers in a gift society, motherers, so to not exclude men who might participate in that uh, that uh, value. The thing that she says happens, and I think it's absolutely true, is that we all receive the gift originally, so we all have that in our in our bodies, you know, and in our psychic structure, and uh, and so nurture is natural. For us, but boys, when they're you know three or four or five, they begin to be socialized to go away from, to depart from that gift of the mother and those right. values of the mother, and they are taught to be not givers, and it's a socialization process. So it's not natural at all uh, for for men, grown up men, to have become uh you know, stingy or whatever it is, withholding uh and to create something like the market system where everything is quid pro quo, everything is, you know, I'll give you this if you give me that, or I'll give you this if you give me a certain amount of money, and so on. Uh, we she says that uh we we all started exactly the same and that uh the the gift economy in the gift economy boys don't get socialized out of giving they uh they're nurturing in matriarchal cultures like the maninkabao or the you know even if you go to bali and see the balinese they're hindu now but behind that you know be before that they were matriarchal and the the men are carrying the children around all the time uh it's just beautiful you know there's there's no shame there's no uh uh, there's no looking down on men as weak if they're home being a house husband or if they uh, are just as equally loving and nurturing as the women. They're, they're still men, you know, they're still val- valorized and valued as men.
1: Right. Sorry. But their masculinity, their definition of masculinity is not tied up with this sort of harsh hierarchical thing, judgmental thinking, yeah. Yeah
2: boys don't cry right you know? yeah yeah and well and, the, the hierarchy would
0: come out of i'm guessing when patriarchal civilizations let's think of without getting into the complexity of the indo-european steppe conquerors once you get a clash with a dominion based civilization let's say that's where you start getting these kinds of market sense of value. Would that be the case? And if so, how does a matriarchal society withstand that conflict? They didn't. We end part one of Old Europe and the Roots of Matriarchy on the clash between matriarchy and patriarchy. We will pick it up there in part two of the episode. Thank you for listening to the 34 Circe song.